until the end of the, the series, but <clears throat> you should stop out there and look at this. Filled with all of these rules and regulations about diet, dress, uh, kind of these archaic religious rituals, and, and some of them are just weird and, and at best random. Okay, and, and, and seemingly, as, as we read through this, uh, here's, here's a couple of examples. Um, eating locust is okay, but shrimp is bad, tells us in Leviticus 11. Uh, God loves sideburns, apparently, because in Leviticus 19, we're told you cannot cut them. So I think I would maybe fit well in the community there, I think. I don't know. This is a good one. I love this one. Backtalking your parents could get you stoned in Leviticus 20. That's, that's a rule. You, you, you come against your parents and you speak against them, then you get stoned. Uh, we've been waiting on our legacy kids and littles to teach that one. Our kids working on it. I mentioned this last week. Absolutely no clothes of mixed fibers in Leviticus 19, it says. So if you're wearing polyester this weekend, not only are you out of fashion, but you're in sin. At least you would have been in the, the days of Leviticus. If you're wearing spandex this weekend, then you're committing sins on multiple levels. So don't. One of the laws states that if uh, two guys, this is interesting, th this wall, if you go out there and look at that wall and just browse down, you're going to see some very, very interesting things. This is an interesting one. Uh, one of the laws states that if two guys are in a fight and one reaches out and grabs the other in a particular, shall we say, sensitive area, he gets his hand cut off. That is a law in the book of Leviticus. But a lot of people, listen, this is, <laughs> this is the Bible. This is the Bible. Like, this is, I love this, because this is, this is the Word of God. This is the Bible. And I told you, this book is way more interesting than I think we give it credit for. It is way more interesting if you start actually reading and start getting in there. But a lot of people, uh, I think, wonder, why do we seem to follow some of the rules of Leviticus, but not others? When Leviticus talks about certain sexual uh, behaviors as sin, we quote that. But when it says not to eat shellfish, or, or you can't eat cheese on your, on your hamburger, because in Leviticus it says you can't mix dairy and, and, and beef. You can't mix dairy and meat. We say that doesn't apply to us anymore. Are we, are we picking and choosing what parts we want to follow? Seemingly, possibly. But let me answer that real quick before we really get into the meat of today's message. Because I think it's such a big question and really somewhat of the thrust of this entire series. There's three types of laws given in Leviticus. There's civil laws. All right, civil laws, uh, these are laws that govern the nation, right? These are uh, behaviors, punishments for crimes. These are all civil laws. All right, you've got, you've got that subset. Then you've also got another subset called ceremonial laws. Uh, these, are, these are the regulations given about cleanliness, uh, about the sacrificial system that we touched on last week with the, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and all the different offerings that we touched on. All right, that's the, those are the ceremonial laws. And then there are moral laws. Moral laws declare uh, what God sees as immoral. Everything from murder uh, to theft to, to, I, to ideals for sexuality, these are the moral laws. Now, when Jesus came, he said two things about the law that can seem contradictory at first. First, he said that the law was perfect in Matthew 5. Right? He says in Matthew 5, 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Right? So Jesus is big on the law. He seemingly, by Matthew 5, he loves the law. And he says the law will be fully accomplished. But he also said that those who were born again by him were released from the law because he came to fulfill it for them. 
So what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? It means that all of the laws pointed to Jesus. He fulfilled all that they pointed to. Okay, the civil law set up the nation of Israel from which Jesus would emerge. So when Jesus came, he started a new Israel, a spiritual Israel. So we're no longer bound by the civil codes of Leviticus because God doesn't have a nation state on earth anymore. So that's why those are kind of set aside. Then the ceremonial laws illustrate for us God's holiness in comparison to our unholiness and what God's going to do about it. The word holy or purity is mentioned over 80 times in the book. All of those laws and sacrifices were fulfilled in Jesus' life and death. The book of Hebrews makes it clear that we have, if we have accepted Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, we don't need any of those lesser sacrifices anymore. So then we come to the moral laws. All right, so that's one of the reasons why we write off some of those. Because those, those were on purpose for a reason for a season. But they've been fulfilled. They've been, they've been satisfied. And then we get to the moral laws. They reflect what God finds good and what he declares offensive. And those laws still apply because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So his perspective, what, the way he looks at us, the way he views holiness hasn't changed. So those laws haven't changed. So saying that the sexual ethics of Leviticus are still relevant but the prohibitions of eating shellfish and wearing polyester is, is not. That's not an arbitrary distinction at all. That's, that's valid. It's how the New Testament teaches us to interpret Leviticus, honestly. Okay, we're going to look. I just wanted to kind of like lay that out there and just make sure that we all understand the differences between the laws before we really dive into what we're going to talk about today and, and even into the rest of, of this series. So uh, we're going to look at one chapter of, of the book today, which... Uh, scholars say the whole book of Leviticus is shaped around. Leviticus chapter 16. Everything in the book, they say, either leads up to or flows down from it. It's kind of like a mountaintop. All right, so in this chapter, in chapter 16, God gives instructions about a very important day, the most important day of the Jewish year called Yom Kippur. It's literally, it literally means the day of covering. All right, the day of covering. We also know it as the day of atonement. This day became so central in the Jewish life that they just called it the day. It was just the day, right? They, they were that, it was that big, that important, that crucial. And as we get into this, you may still be tempted to think, well, this is an interesting story. This is interesting history, but not immediately relevant to my life. But I want you to think of it this way. The whole book deals with a problem that every single one of us face at some point in our lives. Feelings of guilt about certain things we have done. You can relate to that, right? I know a lot of us can. You walked in today with some secret, and it's, it's eating you up on the inside. Every time someone says, hey, we need to talk, maybe this, this siren goes off in your head, and you think, oh, my goodness, they know. Maybe it's a sexual sin you've committed Maybe you know that you have been a bad parent or, or a bad sibling or a bad spouse and you feel guilty about how you treated someone in your life. And maybe that person isn't even around anymore for you to apologize to. Maybe they passed away and you can never look at them and say you're sorry and get some sort of absolution from them. And then a lot of times that guilt turns to shame. And some of us can relate to that. Shame is the question of what kind of person am I who could do something like that? Or what if people find out what I have done? 
You know, if, if you've been in the situation, if you are in the situation, you know this. You know that confessing uh, a little bit, some of your sins get you sympathy. I struggle with pride. I struggle with lust or maybe some other acceptable sins. You confess them in missional community or while we're praying here together on Sunday morning. But you, but, but you feel this guilt and this shame about some other things that you would never dare say out loud. Because you fear it would make it awkward. It will make people think some way about you. Here's a quote from a Christian counselor. He says this, uh, some sins, however, do not elicit sympathetic nods. You know the nod I'm talking about. You're, you're sitting around in a circle and somebody says they're struggling with um, gossip. Man, I've, I've just been, I've been talking bad about somebody. I've been negative about somebody. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. We all get that sympathetic nod. Some sins, however, do not elicit sympathetic nods. If you were adulterous and your family found out, they would not be nodding. Shameful sins receive stares, not nods. Even when guilt is confessed, the shame remains. And then there's this whole thing called covert guilt, which is this sense that we're guilty for something and we're not even sure why. I think this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and their physical and soul nakedness in Genesis chapter 2. A sense of guilt, a sense of guilt before God that you carry around. But that makes all of us ask this question, am I going to be judged? Even if you don't believe in God, it still sort of lingers there, I believe. I need some kind of atonement, redemption. Let me ask you this. If you died today, do you know absolutely for sure that you would be good enough for God to let you into heaven? Do you think you'd be good enough for God to let you in heaven? Leviticus is relevant to us because we all have the same universal experience. We've all experienced guilt. We've all experienced shame. We've all experienced these things. If you feel this way, if you're carrying guilt and shame, you're not alone. I said we're talking about Leviticus 16 and the day. But let's jump back actually to Leviticus 10 because I think it sets it all up. It sets it all up. Something, something very important happens in Leviticus 10 that I think really sets the stage for what's to come in Leviticus 16. So let me, I think it's going to be on the screen behind me if you want to uh, follow along with me. Now the sons of Aaron uh, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. All right, not, not Aaron had not commanded them. The Lord had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Whoa. That's, okay, that's some heavy stuff. Am I reading this right? So they, they put fire, they took the censer, they put fire in it, they laid incense on it, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, <coughs> and they died. Fire came out and consumed them. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Let's look over in chapter 16, though. We're going to be in chapter 16, starting in verse 2. We're going to be reading a little bit out of there. So if you have your Bibles, you can feel free to turn there. That's pretty much where we're going to hang out the rest of the time. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place. No unauthorized entry. Remember the sons. 
No unauthorized entry. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And we can't be in the presence of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. 16.3, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. So he gives them, so they, they came in and they tried to just do their own thing and they tried to give this unauthorized offering and they tried to, to do, this, do this thing all by themselves and God said, no, there, there's, there, there are rules, there are stipulations, there are things that you have to do because I am holy and you're not. Because I am perfect and you're not. And you've got to follow this procedure or else you're going to die. And, and so the Lord doesn't want, the, the, really doesn't want uh, Aaron to die. He says, I, I don't want you to die. I, you, you need to just follow these instructions. So let me give you a quick lesson real quick. Uh, maybe some of you have Bibles that has like a, a good old-fashioned, uh, some, some diagrams in there. Uh, you can feel free to like look at that if you want. But, but we're going to talk for just a moment about the Ark, uh, sorry, not the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. Uh, in the temple, there that, that we're talking about, and this is what the, the whole Day of Atonement surrounding is, is something that happens in the temple, a, a sacrifice and offering, all these things that happen in the temple. So in the temple, uh, there's two rooms, the holy place, and then beyond that, there's the holy of holies. So first you have the holy place, then you have the holy of holies, and the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And there were a few sacred relics inside the ark, but on top of the ark, all right, if you can picture this with me, on top of the ark was the mercy seat. That's where the blood of sacrifices were sprinkled. We talked about that last week. Whenever they would go in, the, they would go in and they would kind of they would take the, the the legs or the whatever of the animals and they would they would sacri- they would spread the blood around. That's where the blood was spread. That's where it was put in that moment. The mercy seat. It wasn't a chair. I know your mind immediately goes to some sort of a throne. It wasn't a chair, so to speak, but the surface of the ark on which God's presence would rest. On top of that mercy seat stood two cherubim, which stood like soldiers, kind of guarding the entry to the presence of God. Very similar to the angel with the flaming sword that God put in the Garden of Eden, if you remember that, after he'd driven driven Adam and Eve out to keep them from coming back in. All right, so the Holy of Holies, it's where the ark was. It's closed off by a veil, and this is important because this comes back up later with, with the crucifixion. Of Christ, the veil was four inches thick. I've never seen fabric four inches thick. It's it's usually pretty thin. Four inches thick, woven of seventy-two blue and red and purple cords, each with twenty-four strands apiece. The veil was called uh, a parochet, which means literally shut off, because that's what the veil did. It shut off the presence of God from everyone. It was totally dark in there. Shut off. The main part of the temple was pretty busy. People were coming and going. The priests were coming in, and sacrifices and offerings were being made. So, so the holy place was pretty busy. It was a hopping spot, but the holy of holies was very quiet. And it was dark, and it was shut off. In the holy place, the priests would go several times a day, offer sacrifices, do a bunch of religious rituals, but not the holy of holies. It can only be entered by one person, the most high priest, and only one day of the year, the day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So chapter 16 goes on to describe the process of entering the holy place. All right, there's this whole process behind how you go in. Uh, I'm going to summarize this part just in the interest of time. Uh, A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion. 
He was taken away from his home. And all this is, all you can find all this in, in chapter 16 and in a few other accompanying uh, chapters around. But, but he was uh, taken, he, the high priest was put in a seclusion. He was taken away from his home uh, into, and put into a place where he's completely alone. Why, uh, why would they do that? Why would they seclude him? Why would they sequester him? Because they didn't want him to accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. So he had to go through this whole process for a week. Then the day before, all right, the night before the Day of Atonement, he stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he would bathe from head to toe. Then he would dress in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies. He offered uh, a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay the penalty for his own sins. He had to start out there. First he had to pay, he had to ask God to pay the penalty for his own sins using an animal sacrifice. Then he would come out, bathe completely again, put on new white linens, and then he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of the priests. And then he would come out, bathe from head to toe again, put on new fresh white linens, and then he would go in a third time. And when he went in the third time, he went into the Holy of Holies and he atoned for the sins of the people. So this is the process he had to go through. This is a long process. And this was all done publicly. The temple was crowded. People in attendance, they were, they were closely watching to see what would happen. They, were, they had their eyes on what was going on. There was a thin screen and he bathed behind it, but, but the people were present. They saw him bathe, they saw him dress, they saw him go in and come back out. He was their representative before God. They were there cheering him on as if it was like some sort of a, a sporting event. Except it was much more important than a sporting event. It was their atonement. It was the release of their sins. They were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God. He was their representative, their mediator before God in that moment. So chapter 16 explains uh, that part of the sacrifice ritual was the, the choosing of two goats. This is where we want to pick it up. I want to sit on this for a few moments here this morning. For chapter seven, uh, Sorry, chapter 16, verse 7. Then he shall take the two goats... And set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one for Azazel. And, and Aaron shall present the goat on which uh, the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And then it will be sent away into the wilderness. I want to skip ahead because we, we talked last week about how they would kill the goat and how they would use it as a sacrifice and, and what exactly they would do. You know, they would kind of lay their hand on it and they would transfer sin and then they would, they would cut it up into a lot of pieces and they would set it on the altar and it would get burned. And we, we already talked about that. It would be, we, we talked about how the, the purpose behind the killing of the goat, the killing of the animal was uh, to be used as a sacrifice that would prophetically represent the future slaying and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the priest kills the first goat, but, but for the other one, and this is what I find the most interesting, uh, verse 21, we're going to skip just ahead to verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat. All right, so remember the first one. The first one, he kind of puts one hand on. The priest puts one hand on the goat, and he transfers uh, some sin, and he transfers the stuff there, and then, it, and then it happens. So right now, though, Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and conf 
confess over it all the iniquities of all the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and then send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That goat is their scapegoat. That goat's their scapegoat. Can you imagine being in that crowd and watching the goat run away into the wilderness, knowing that it represented all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your guilt? What a powerful image. That's what they were glued to. That's what they were watching. They wanted, they wanted to see that goat go away, and with that, a release. With that, their, their sin and their shame and their guilt could be shed in that moment because that goat was carrying it with them. It's actually, a, it's not necessarily scriptural, but there's a tradition says that they had uh, a man kind of go and be out like one would take the goat, but then one would also be out there to make sure the goat went off a cliff because they thought it would be very disheartening if the goat would come back into the village <laughs> since it was carrying all their sin and shame. I don't know if that's true. That's just something I, I read somewhere. I don't know. So what do we learn about guilt and sin from this chapter? Let me give you three things. One, our sin is much worse. It's far worse than we imagined. Reading Leviticus, you get the sense over and over and over again that a great rift exists between God and man. All right, we're shut off with a veil. We're shut off with a veil, guarded by mighty angels with swords. At the beginning of this message, I asked you, if you die today, do you know uh, absolutely for sure that you'd be good enough for God to let you into heaven? The question behind that question is, what is the standard God uses? Okay, if I don't, how am I going to know if I'm going to be good enough? If What is the standard God uses? What is his passing grade? How good is good enough? Leviticus shows you absolute perfection. That just, just absolute perfection, that's all. It's as simple as that. Aaron's sons show you that, that, that you are, if, that you are so sinful, we read in chapter 10, you're so sinful that one wrong move, one false move, one misstep and it's over. They, they died on the spot, one sin. Church, I think that we have a very man-centered view of sin. We have this man-centered view of sin of, of, oh, it's not that bad. But it is. It is the slightest defilement, the slightest mess up, the slightest misstep. Sin is sinful because of who it is against, and we are filled with sin. And all that we think and all that we say and all that we do, that's the reality of our life. Sin is much worse, far worse than we could have imagined. You know, Leviticus even has a category for unknown sins. Things that we do that are sinful that we don't even know about. That seems fair, right? Even in your best actions. As I stand up here and preach to you, I could have sin mixed in my motives. I could be thinking, what are these people thinking of me right now? I could get prideful and forget how dependent on God I need to be. Even in, even in the, the best of situations, 
The Puritans have this saying that goes, uh, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the lamb. Because even they could possibly be sinful in nature. They could be, they could be done with the wrong motive. James 4.17 tells us uh, that to know, uh, to know to do good and not to do it is a sin. How many times have I known to do something good? Something I could do that would be good, and I think, oh, I'm tired. Maybe next time. There's always tomorrow. We use these little pithy excuses. Leviticus shows us that our sin is much worse and more engulfing than you could have ever imagined. In fact, coming into God's presence with any sin is like a piece of parchment paper touching the surface of the sun. We cannot handle the glory of God in our sinful, unforgiven state. Romans 3.23 says we all fall short. The standard of the glory, the, the, the standard is the glory of God. Nothing less than that will suffice. Nothing less than that will do. We don't make it. Step number two. God's grace is greater than we dreamed. God's grace is so much greater than we dreamed. Why did God have them use two goats? I think it was to illustrate two different things God was doing with our sin. All right, one goat was slaughtered for our sin, showing that our sin is paid for. This is a, a theological concept called justification. Justification means there literally is no more claim against us. It, it, okay, if you wreck into someone's car, like if you have a car accident and they take you to court and the insurance pays their claim, literally that person has no more claim against you. The debt's been settled. That's what happens with the first goat. The other goat, the one sent to the wilderness, illustrates for us the concept of cleansing. Because here's the thing, God not only pays for our sins, he removes them from us. Whereas the first goat showed us that we are forgiven on the basis of a substitute, the second shows us that our sins are forgotten and removed from us. As the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The prophet Micah says that God has put our sins on the bottom of the ocean. And Isaiah says that he throws our sins behind his back metaphorically so he doesn't even see them anymore. In Hebrews, we're told that God forgets our sins. In Romans, we learn that God covers our sins. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are some people who say, I feel like my sins are so bad are so heavy, are so daunting, that there's no way God could forgive them. I don't think I can be forgiven. Maybe you can be forgiven for that, but I, I have no, I, I don't think that I can be forgiven for this. Leviticus 16, 16. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions. All of their sins. There's no conditions there. Do you see any conditions there? All of their sins. There's no condition, there's no list of sins that you cannot be forgiven from. There's no book of sins that, that cannot be atoned for. If you uh, still desire forgiveness, whatever you have for whatever you have done, you can receive that forgiveness through the grace of God. 
Church, when you say, I can't be forgiven, you're not exaggerating the size of your sin. You're shrinking the, the forgiving power of our God. Your sin is great, but church, God's grace is greater. You have to understand that. You say, well, maybe God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, now you're just saying that your opinion matters more than God's. <laughs> I mean, who do we really think we are? If God has forgiven you and promises to restore you, who are you to exalt your opinion above God's? It doesn't matter what you've done. God can forgive. It doesn't matter who you've hurt. God can forgive. It doesn't matter who you've, who you've, who you've crossed. God can forgive because his grace is greater than we dreamed. Here's number three. The day is all about Jesus. The day of atonement, the day is all about Jesus. Can't you just see the fingerprints of Jesus all throughout this sacrifice? When you read through the, the last week of Jesus' life, you notice uh, that we call that the Passion Week. When we read through the last week of Jesus' life, you notice that Jesus seems to be staging his own day of atonement. All right, just like, let me give you a few examples. Just like the high priest, he began to prepare a week beforehand. So I would call it the Passion Week or the Holy Week. The night before the, his sacrifice, he stayed up all night. But he wasn't clothed in, clothed in rich garments like the Jewish high priest. He was stripped of the only garment he had. And instead of being cheered on by the people like the priest was, he was jeered by them and abandoned by nearly everyone he loved. He wasn't bathed in a purifying pool. He was bathed in human spit. When he came before God, he didn't receive words of encouragement. The father actually turned his face away, Scripture says. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, scorned. Took the crown of thorns. He was struck dead. Even though he had no defilement about him, much like the perfect lamb or goat that we've been talking about. And on the cross when he died, he cried, it is finished. To tell us I is the word that they use. They found this phrase inscribed on Roman receipts. Literally, it means it is paid. In Christ, God has no more claim against our sin. It's justified. The curtain that separated us from God was a symbol of his perfect flesh. It was torn so we could enter the presence of God. During the crucifixion, the curtain was literally torn into four inches of fabric, literally torn into from the top to bottom. And for the first time in history, the way to God was wide open. Let me give you a few more. Jesus' body was the mercy seat where his blood was sprinkled so that we could find forgiveness of sins. When the disciples first come to find Jesus in, in John chapter 20, verse 12, John mentions two angels in the tomb, one at the head and one at the foot of where Jesus laid, like the cherubim on the sides of the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. You see, Jesus was recreating the seat. He was recreating the sacrifice. He was recreating the Holy of Holies. Jesus' slain body was now our mercy seat where we can find forgiveness for sins. But a high priest doesn't, isn't the only one that has to come. Now all of us can come. Leviticus 16 says that when Aaron was done with his atonement ceremony, he was to take off his linen. You know what Peter and John found in the empty tomb? Just linens. The day was all about Jesus. 
because the atonement had been finished. Jesus was the scapegoat who carried away our sins forever into his grave. Jesus went into the grave bearing our sins. Three days later, he came out, and our sins stayed there. As far away as the east is from the west, hidden in the depths of the sea, they're not just covered over. They are gone forever. The Old Testament prophet um, Zechariah, writing some 500 years before Jesus was born, he describes a vision in which he sees a high priest named Joshua about to enter into the presence of God. But to his horror, Zechariah sees Joshua, this high priest, about to enter the Holy of Holies covered in human excrement. That's what the word says. This was a disaster. Not only for Joshua, but for all the people of Israel. Again, this wasn't just for one man. They were going in, the the high priest was going in to atone for the entire nation. They were all counting on him. They were all looking at him. So this was a disaster. He's seeing this vision. This moment of representation by the high priest was their only hope of forgiveness, and he knew that. And just as Zechariah despairs, However, he hears the Lord say to Joshua, to the high priest, take off your filthy clothes. See, I have taken your sin away, and I will put rich garments on you. I will send my servant and remove the sin of this land on a single day, on a single day, the day. God had given Zechariah a vision of how we all, even the most religious among us, Look to God as we approach him. And a promise to remove that defilement from us, God makes forever on a single day, the day, the day of atonement. Before God, we're all like filth-covered Joshua's that, that Zechariah saw. Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. But because a new Joshua, who was perfect, was clothed in our filth and suffered its consequences, we can now put on the garments of righteousness. Because Jesus, who deserved condemnation, or deserved commentation, received condemnation, we instead, who deserve condemnation, receive commentation from the Lord. That's what he does for us in this moment. On this day, the gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus didn't just die for us. He didn't merely die for us. He died instead of us. He took our sins. He bore our shame. He rose to life. He defeated the grave. You know, I think people misread Leviticus. Uh, look how many laws there are. Look how, look how difficult it is to get through. Leviticus was not written to tell them all that they need to do, but what God would do for them. The effect of reading Leviticus on you should, be, should not be, oh, my God, look at how much I have to do for you. Instead, it should be, oh, my God, look what you have done for me. I want to close out. We have some more worship we want to do, we want to sing, we want to praise. But let me just ask you this. Have you received the free salvation offer that God has offered? Have you accepted the covering? Have you experienced a personal day of atonement? You can. 
You don't need a high priest. You don't even need me. All you need is a willing heart. And you can approach the throne room of God. You can approach the holy of holies. Because Jesus is now the mercy seat. His his blood was shed on our behalf. He died instead of us. We're going to sing. We're going to praise. We're going to have a great time. Leviticus, if nothing else, is is a book about worship. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. It's really... It's not just about, it's not, it's not just these laws, it's about worship. It's about how we're able to worship God effectively and freely. So I want to encourage you in these next moments to, to worship God. To bear your all before him. To come down and worship through communion. To, 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 to worship by, by, by sitting and praying and absorbing the words that are being sung. By standing and lifting your hands and praising him, whatever it is you need to do. Worship him in these moments, but if you don't know the Lord and you want to talk to somebody today, I hope that you will be bold and step out. You don't have to do it in front of everybody. I'm going to be down the hallway. You can just come see me for a moment. I'd love to pray over you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to celebrate with you. I'd love to talk a little bit more about what this atonement thing is a little bit more about what Jesus has done and can do in your life and for you. Let me pray over us and then we're going to sing together. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the, the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Thank you that, that, that we no longer have to offer sacrifices. We no longer have to do burnt offerings. We no longer have to do guilt offerings. Instead, you've covered it. Not only have you covered it, but you've taken it away. You've destroyed it. You've removed it. You've tossed it behind you. Our sin, our shame, our guilt, all of it. God, may we, we, may, may we ex- accept that here this morning. May we be refreshed in that. Maybe some of us have forgotten Maybe some of us don't don't remember the power of your love. So right now in this moment, God, remind us. Holy Spirit, remind us, teach us, stretch us, grow us. And if there's somebody in this place that doesn't know you, God, I pray in these moments you would draw them close. That they would give their life to you. They would experience the release of letting go of ourselves and accepting you. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.